Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 136, where I had the pleasure of interviewing Ashley Brzezicki. This is Ashley's second time on the podcast, and due to the popularity of her first episode, I brought her back again to have a conversation around death and dying. Throughout this show, we discussed things like grief, death, palliative care, and much more as it relates to the topic of death. I do want to note that as this topic is a sensitive topic, and you feel this episode is not for you, then certainly check out any of my past episodes on other topics. If you'd like to go ahead and listen, I certainly learned a lot as always. I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Friday. We have another interview this week. We have another um, returning guest that I'm sure many of you are familiar with if you have consumed any of the content on our website over the past couple of years or you've consumed any of my courseware or course material or even been listening to the podcast on a regular basis. Um, You will know Ashley Brzezicki quite well. Welcome back, Ashley, and I'm looking forward to a part two of part one's topic way back from episode 97, which I guess when I was looking back, it is 36 plus 339 episodes ago, but it is, I think, almost two years ago or a year and a half ago. That's wild. Mm -hmm. Without giving... For those people that really want to know Ashley's backstory, again, I'll post episode 97 in the show notes so you can go back and listen to part one. But for people that are that haven't heard part one yet, um, just give the, the listeners kind of a brief background about what you do and who you are. Sure. I am a massage therapist. I also have advanced degrees in anthropology, um, so I uh, a bachelor's and a master's degree. And I'm a death doula. So I decided to blend all of my knowledge and all of those fields together and offer uh, education to other massage therapists about the death care space. That's, That's what I do. That's what I'm kind of pivoting towards focusing on more and more all the time. Um, So we had a great chat the first time. And uh, if anyone did want to check out that episode, that would probably give a good, you know, a detailed background for how I came to do what I do and kind of the the most basic things to know about death and life. Yeah, that would probably be a great place to start. The first question that I have is at the beginning or around that episode, you were beginning, we'll call it your public journey then. You had been doing your own work behind the scenes and you had, I don't know if my podcast was the first thing, but it was one of the first things. You had done some writing and stuff. And that podcast is... Um, one of the most popular episodes I've ever done. So it's the second most popular interview and the sixth most popular episode of all time. And most of the other episodes that are ahead of it 
are like a year or so older than those episodes. So it was a really, really popular episode. The other thing that was surprising, I guess, to me was the amount of comments that people private messaged me. I know people private messaged you. And it's not that I don't get comments on other episodes, but it seemed as though this episode there were a lot of comments. From that, you've gone on to do other work. You've done interviews on national TV. You've done cafes where you help people. And it's just really, you know, you've been presenting. It's just very much kind of taken off. And I don't even know that you have really tried to propel it that much. It just kind of has taken off in the way that it has. So the first thing that I want to ask you is why do you think that that episode was so popular, the feedback was so positive, and there's so much attraction to what it is that you are doing? Why are you so popular? (laughs) It does stroke the ego a little bit, I will say. Um, No, but mostly I'm just really happy that people are resonating that much with it. There's there's a part of me that is a little bit surprised for how it's taken off. And then there's a bigger part of me that really isn't that surprised at all. And that's the part of me that knows that death touches absolutely everybody. Absolutely everybody, obviously. And we don't get the opportunities to talk about it that much, not in public spaces together as groups of people. Usually death is something that's considered on either an individual basis or within a family, individual families grieving together. But rarely do we ever come together as individuals who not even necessarily in the moment are dealing with an acute situation where there's death involved. We don't really have a ton of spaces dedicated to that. It's not a conversation that is generally held. So I think that was probably where some of the popularity came from. The fact that it's uh, everyone is going to experience it at some point in time or already has in one way or another. And secondarily, there's not enough spaces to talk about it openly as a general community, not as individuals grieving. And then the other thing that is really predominant in our culture specifically is the notion of there being some sort of a figurehead or an expert, right? And that's something that I kind of push against in the death care space. Because of the nature of the topic, I am both a student and a teacher of death at exactly the same time, and so is everybody else. But people in our culture like an expert. They like someone who has studied something for a long enough period of time that they feel like they can get up in front of a group of people and talk about it. But it's just, death is an amorphous thing. (laughs) Something that touches us all. It's something that I don't believe that people can be quote unquote experts in. I think there's parts of death that will always surprise people. And that's something that I really try to emphasize when I'm talking with groups of people. It's like a layered onion effect. Like I am far more farther along in my journey than I ever thought I would be in accepting my own mortality and making peace with, you know, these big existential questions that I refer to. But at the same time, I'm already I have enough wisdom now at this point in time, having studied this for 20 plus years and having my own life experiences at this point that I don't try to create any sort of expectation around death anymore or life, Mm -hmm. right? It's not something that we can predict that easily. 
So I would say it's probably a combination of all of those things, not enough spaces to talk about it, people like an expert, and I kind of, you know, stepped up after my death doula training to start talking about this more openly, uh, and the fact that it touches everybody. Do you think the lack of, I know in the previous conversation that we had, we talked about some of the cultural implications and how different cultures celebrate the life of somebody. Do you think the lack of openness is a a specific to a North America or the Americas culturally? Are other cultures better at opening the conversation publicly or that seems to be fairly consistent across the board? I would definitely say that there's other cultures out there that embrace the concept of death, the concept and the reality of death in a different way. I wouldn't necessarily, in some ways, I guess from my personal experience, I might have a personal opinion that some people do it better. Mm-hmm. But at the very least, we can all agree that everybody doesn't does it differently. Cultures do it differently than they do here. Mm-hmm. There is places out there where there is an emphasis on having, like, even if you look at, like, subcultures, like, if you look at New Orleans, they have parades dedicated to people that have passed on, where the emphasis is very much joy rather than mourning, and you probably do a combination of both at the same time. Mm -hmm. But they throw full-on parades for people that have passed away. And we don't, you know, the concept of that over here just kind of seems... We're a little bit more conservative in the East in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. People are talking more and more about celebration of life rather than funerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, they're not as common as they are in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And then just in terms of philosophy, just in terms of the way that some cultures weave the reality of mortality into their cultural teachings, into their oral traditions and their histories, it's just baked into the fabric of their teachings over centuries, right? So over there, they just have a deeper appreciation and understanding and peace with death than we do over here. Mm-hmm. Our uh, our culture seems to be made up of, I already referenced that people like an expert in, in the West. Our culture places an, an emphasis on certitude, uncertainty of truth finding, fact finding, and everything else is kind of thrown out the window as being less than. Right. There are other cultures out there that emphasize the fact that you can't know everything and finding a way to make peace with that. And that goes straight from, I would say that that encompasses everything from the fact that you don't know when you're going to die, right? The fact that you might live another 25, 35 years, or you might die tomorrow Mm -hmm. and to have peace with that all the way right through the belief in whether or not an afterlife exists. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So it's just it's it's much more it's much more baked in, weaved into the fabric of their uh, of their culture than it is here. Well, and I remember before when we were speaking about grief, speaking to the, the kind of expert and certainty thing, it's not like there is one way to grieve or one way to prepare for death or one way to die. Um, it appears like it's such an individual process that people go through. Mm-hmm. And I know that your message is, you know, if you can start to cater towards that individual that is still living, you know, I think that's one of the other things that you've emphasized a lot in, in speaking is that a person is still living. They're not necessarily dying. They're, they're, you know, sometimes doing both at the same time, but 
sometimes because of our own apprehension and being uncomfortable around the topic, we don't really know how to, you know, navigate that process. And that can be really, really difficult. And so when you have, or you want to look towards an expert and that expert is kind of like, there are many different ways to do this that doesn't provide you certainty and that can lead to a lot of apprehension, I imagine. Yeah, there's definitely some people out there that have hardship around vulnerability and certainty. So if you're the type of person that doesn't handle uncertainty well, then you will probably find it pretty difficult to come face to face with the certainty of life and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for those people, they, they, I used to be this person. To be clear, I don't want to. I don't want to come across as if, uh, you know, I'm I'm somehow higher or, or holier than thou. It's not that at all. I've mm-hmm. dedicated 20 years to being okay with my mortality because initially I was extremely not okay with it, mm-hmm. and I was that person that really struggled with a sense of, I don't like not knowing things. And I find comfort in knowing things, even if I'm lying to myself about it, right? Even if I'm completely denying things, somehow it feels safer than opening up myself to the possibility of not knowing. Well, and I am that person, so that's okay too. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's not like there are a lot of people that are in this position of um, avoidance due to that lack of certainty and fear you know i think it's people's biggest fear or one of them anyway certainly one of my biggest fears and one of the reasons why i've or had you on and had you on again and it's like i'm trying to look that fear in the face myself so Mm -hmm. you know i'm certainly not going to say that it's not i have zero fear anymore but it is interesting to be able to have some comfort around the topic and speak about it yeah kind of explore it to whatever your comfort level is and see kind of how that makes you makes you feel I guess yeah and that's why that's why I was referring back to like the layered onion effect that I was talking about earlier like I'm I'm still very much a layered onion there's some parts of it that I think I've dealt with forever I don't think for example if I were to get sick if I were to get like a terminal illness diagnosis I genuinely believe that at this point I would skip right past the uh, why me thing. Mm -hmm. I I don't think I would deal with that at all. Uh, I think I've made, I think I've done well at being like, well, why not me? (laughs) There isn't anything about me that makes me more special than the other person. Mm -hmm. And the universe doesn't owe me any kind of certainty. That's inherently not how the universe works. I know it's super, it's really, really uh, scary and funny to think about that at the same time. Absolutely. So I think, I, I think I would just blow right past that, but you know, my fears exist in, in other places now they exist in places where, oh shoot. Okay. I didn't know that's the way that that worked. Okay. Let's consider where I can find comfort in that now. And I find that in places where, you know, when I consider aging out of being able to take care of myself in my own home and then being, I was going to say relinquished, (laughs) you know, see, even just like there's fear-based language that I'm using around it because there is fear around it for me. So being relinquished to a care home where I've got no control over who gets hired or fired, Mm -hmm. right? What happens if I don't like my caretakers and I'm stuck in this house? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, you know, I've got fears around that and there's things that I can definitely over time unpack about that. And I'm sure that I will. And, um, you know, but maybe some parts of it will never feel that comfortable. I mean, statistically, I know that the majority of people would prefer to die in their own homes than like the vast majority of people. It's something like 74% or something like that of all North Americans would rather die in their own home. But the reality is that a very small percentage of people are actually able to do that, mm-hmm. right? Because they get sick with some sort of chronic illness and then the caregivers aren't able to come to the house consistently enough to be able to care for you and full, or you might not be able to afford it, mm-hmm. right? So it's things like that where you start losing control of your situation that might feel a little bit fearsome all over again to people mm-hmm. and to me. But I think... I think the thing to emphasize is that fear is something you can work on no matter where you are or what you're afraid of. Trying to almost look at your fear with curiosity instead of something that you're trying to avoid Mm -hmm. makes it more manageable for you to have fear to begin with. Mm -hmm. Like being able to sit with it is a key, I think, to being resilient to it. What have you learned about people's interpretation of the information that you're presenting as you're starting to speak more about this, like as the general public being receptive to it, how are they mm-hmm. interpreting it? What are some of the kind of curious questions that people are asking or comments that people are giving you as you kind of become more public with this information? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. There's some. So in general, I'd say that it's been very well received, which has been delightful for me. Uh, but there are some times where people say things that don't surprise me as much. And then when I sit those people down and have a chat with them about, you know, where their perception comes from, then they start, <laughs> you can tell that they start kind of processing the information in a different way. So one of those things is when people tell me that they don't know how I could do what I do. It, it, I mean, to me, it just makes me, I never, I never laugh out loud, but I just, I start laughing internally just because if you know if if that is your perception if you think that this is hard then that to me says everything that i need to know about where you are in your journey of accepting your own mortality or what your perception is of death or of being around people who are terminally ill Mm -hmm. right because for a lot of people it's a scary concept and so they can't fathom what it would be to sit with people in those circumstances, whether they're in palliative or in hospice care. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I want to emphasize to people is hospice and palliative care provides something to the healthcare provider that regular biomedical forms of medicine does not. So if you are working in palliative or hospice care, the emphasis is collaborative care. The emphasis is lessening suffering as opposed to curing disease. So, you know, there isn't as much, it's not the same kind of pressure. The pressure is different to relieve suffering versus to curing a disease, Mm -hmm. right? That is a completely different level of expectation from your healthcare provider. Which of those two populations gets more burnout? Do you think gets more burnout? I would say the uh, those populations that are trying to cure disease. That's correct. And I mean, I'm I'm sure there's also there's probably still circumstances where palliative care teams are still getting pressure from people that have 
not accepted the terminal illness of individuals and still pressuring them to, you know, there must be something else that you can do or what have you. Yeah. Just in doing what we kind of do in the day to day, which is, you know, we're helping managing things like pain and symptoms, Mm -hmm. just knowing sort of the pressures that are put upon us at times to um, help people that are struggling with pain, I know can be just a lot. And then there's not necessarily, you know, the disease component or even just treating people in the clinic that are going through a disease process. They're going through cancer treatment or something else and listening to the stories that they are telling you. And you can imagine that the pressure that is put upon the care team, I'm certainly not blaming the individual is going through the, the particular disease, but I imagine that the pressure is significant on those, those individuals for sure. The thing is with palliative and hospice care, those teams generally get a lot more education about how to communicate the nuance and the reality of situations that people find themselves in. And it's in other clinical contexts that are outside of hospice and palliative care where those conversations aren't given the weight or the time in education that they deserve when healthcare providers are going through their schooling. The thing is that in one of these contexts, the emphasis is human connection more so than anything else, right? And where there is human connection, that sense of connection goes both ways, which helps reduce the level of burnout and uh, just mental and emotional exhaustion that the care team goes through. Because it's not, you know, if you're a doctor and you're going in as an example, and you're going in as an oncologist and you're trying to cure cancer, that's a very different circumstance than going into hospice care as a doctor and having, you know, 20 minutes to ask your client about what their existential fears are and to have a moment of connection. You know, one of those things, it's baked into the way that the system works, that the doctor will have more time to be able to do that in hospice and palliative care generally. Obviously, there is exceptions to every circumstance, but but then in, in the other, you know, say you're working in a hospital setting on an oncology floor, like I mentioned, they're just, you know, a lot of times they're run off their feet and they don't have the time to have that kind of human connection. You're a human yourself. If you're a healthcare provider, every doctor goes into, I would like to think that every doctor goes into that field because what they want to do is less than human suffering. And then they, all of a sudden you look around yourself as a doctor, as a healthcare provider, and you're like, oh shoot, the system is set up in such a way that prevents me from being able to reduce human suffering Mm -hmm. because my role here is to try to cure disease. Mm -hmm. And there is way too many people that I'm trying to treat at the same time. So instead of being able to have time to talk with all of those people, in reality, what's going to end up happening is you read all of the information that you need from a chart note electronically Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people don't get that face to face time with their healthcare providers in those settings. Mm-hmm. So you as a, as a healthcare provider start feeling like a robot. And on the other side of it, the patient starts feeling like they've been emotionally abandoned mm-hmm. by healthcare. And it's just it's not the same tone at all in palliative and hospice care, which is why when people come to me and say, I have no idea how you can do what you do. I just I find it 
I mean, I can give you all the reasons why it's such a rewarding thing to work on. Well, and I think if I think back to my conversation with Susan Shipton on breast cancer too, that is the physician's role in that part of the disease, right? It's, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily playing sort of a palliative supportive, maybe mental health role in that there are generally speaking other parts of, you know, social work, psychology, that type of thing that are there. It's not like those things don't exist at all for those individuals. It's just the primary role of the healthcare provider in the snippet of that person's journey or story seems to be a little bit more parsed out than maybe a one sole team that's responsible for the palliative process of this individual and seeing that whole thing through. That's true. You had mentioned earlier about this idea of being kind of resistant to death and or or attached to death. And I'm reading this book by Pema Chodron right now called, I think it's called How We Live is How We Die. And in the book, she talks about suffering in general. And she says that the majority of suffering is either caused by this attachment or being overly attached to an outcome or being overly resistant to an outcome and not being curious about you know, these certain circumstances. And I think this is easier said than done if you're really, really scared or really, really fearful of something on how to approach it. What have you kind of learned about this topic yourself since you have looked into it and how might you help somebody that is either really, really attached to this idea, kind of obsessive and fearful about it, or the opposite, very resistant to it and doesn't want to talk about it or with their family or anybody because of a multitude of reasons. It depends where you catch a person on their journey. So what my strong feeling, and this is backed by so the research that I've read so far is, is that the sooner in advance you can start working on practicing unattachment and just being able to flow with uncertainty a little bit more gracefully, I'll say with, with, without as much uh, resistance or attachment, the better off you're being towards the end of your life. Like it, it will serve you the skills that you develop in practicing that. Cause it's like meditation in a way, right? Like it's, you can't expect yourself to be a, a master meditator all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It's something that you practiced over time. And the reality is that a lot of people when they first start their meditation practice, they think they're absolute garbage at it because they already have expectations around being, you know, amazing at it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's not, <laughs> that's not reality. And it's not fair. Same thing when you're considering existential things and mortality and the end of your life. So the, the more you're willing to sit with it and you said the magic word curious, the more you're able to be curious about the questions that come up for you and about the feelings that come up for you, such as fear, the more it opens up the potential for you to dive into trying to find reasons for the answers 
to those questions. But if you're moving out of a place of fear or resistance, you're not interested in what the reasons are. All you want to do is not feel what you're feeling. And that can be really tough if you're looking at the end of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can start that practice and that journey, we can call it a contemplative practice. That's what we do in death doula work. And you know, one of my beliefs is that the contemplative practices uh, serves people well if they're considering death. I would just get started with that or much earlier, as early as possible, really. It gives back because it's out of being able to contemplate the hardships of everything and making peace with those things that I now have more room for sitting in gratitude Mm -hmm. and accepting joy when it comes. I used to do this thing where this is called foreboding joy, uh, according to Brené Brown's research. She's a, a PhD social worker. I mean, she's super famous. A lot of people know her. So with foreboding joy, what happens for people that have a problem with uncertainty or vulnerability issues, if you're in a moment where you're, you catch yourself feeling joy for a flick of a minute, what your brain likes to do, because our protective brain tends towards negativity, right? So your brain will go, when's the other shoe going to drop? Uh Oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm way too joyful right now. Like I have to be on the lookout for danger right? Because you don't want to be caught off guard. Similar thing happens when people consider their mortality. But the thing is that I have unlocked the potential for greater moments of deeper joy ever since I've started contemplating my death, because it's not something I'm resistant or hiding from anymore. And in moments where I am, then that's my cue that I kind of have to lean in and look at where my fears are coming from and start kind of gently unraveling that web. Mm -hmm. And that's all I've been doing for the last 20 years. That's really, you know, that's the secret of it all. And I went from being so profoundly terror, just full of terror, having to do with my own death, like to the point where I'd have panic attacks if it was even mentioned in my classes. Because every once in a while, like the teacher would be up front, full classroom, obviously, there's like 150 people in my intro anthropology courses. If the conversation started shifting towards death, I would start having these very visceral reactions to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went from having acute existential dread to being able to educate other people around it. I think where that comes from is First of all, studying different cultures and just understanding that the way that we do it here is not the only way to do it because I don't like the way that we do it here. I find it too sanitized and and full of shame, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody talks about it, yet everybody undergoes it. And for some reason, we haven't found a better way because everyone's too afraid of talking about it. Mm -hmm. But also just having this contemplative practice that resembles something akin to meditation. Mm -hmm. So the earlier you can do that, the better. And the other thing I will say that if if you are dealing with someone who's facing the end of their life a- acutely, like it's very fresh and it's happening very soon, a lot of times those people will do the best that they can with what they have. And because they haven't practiced the contemplative practice, because they haven't made their peace around mortality, it's generally going to be pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the thing that I want to warn people about is that is the reason why you want to get started on this sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have a practice in place, it is generally tougher. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, that is basically the sentiment in Pema's book also. I also think that it doesn't even necessarily, maybe to begin with, have to be around death, but more about life. I think one of the things that I've realized in reading her book, as well as, you know, just looking at her work is, I don't know about other people, but I can only speak to myself, but I imagine it, a lot of people relate to this is like a lot of fear about death is actually fear about not living life in a way that is true to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not true to your values. You don't want to have regrets. You want to make sure that you do the things that are true to you. And these are things that, you know, I've talked about at length on other podcasts um, with respect to career, trying to find, you know, happiness and chasing happiness. The realization that, as you alluded to, like happiness isn't really something that needs to be chased it can be present in your everyday life. You just have to kind of look for it as well as something that we started our conversation off with this idea of needing to be an expert or needing to, you know, put in the hours to get good at something Mm -hmm. before you're going to get to a place where you are feeling better about it. Um, one of my friends right now is starting meditation. I've had a few different people start meditation, which I think is great. But they kind of say what you said earlier was, I'm not good at it. And I just respond with, well, meditation is not really something that you're supposed to be good at. You know, I'm not really trying to be the best meditator. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just watched a presentation with Pema, who's was 85 at the time in her presentation and is a Buddhist nun that has been teaching meditation for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years now, has written countless books, countless retreats, is one of the certainly figureheads in North America. And someone else was speaking and she was saying how it was annoying her. I just thought that was so funny because she was laughing at herself And here's somebody that has devoted her entire life's work to meditating as a Buddhist nun and is getting annoyed. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of, you feel okay about that. It's not that you're never going to be, well, and this is the other thing. It's not that you're never not going to be angry. You're not going to be, you know, you're not going to get rid of anger, fear, sadness, And on the flip side, you're not going to get rid of joy, happiness, gratitude. These are things that come and go in life. They're part of life. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in this idea that happiness, and then all of a sudden we get to that destination, and then we're happy, and we never feel sad again. And that's just not the way that this works. So you might just be able to start, right? You might not need anything. It might all be in front of you, and you just kind of go about it whatever way you seem comfortable and maybe you'll get to a point where you want to talk to people like yourself or do other investigative work but at least if you're dipping your toes in the water you it's probably better than you know just walking the other direction from the swimming pool absolutely that's why i like death cafes as much as i do because the whole idea of a death cafe is it was started by this guy named john underwood in the uk and it's become a social franchise. So what that means is you have to register 
the death cafe that you're going to host. And then that registration gets posted onto the death cafe website. So you can log on to the death cafe website and found, find all of these official death cafes that are going to be hosted. And they're, they're run the same way. It's just a space dedicated to people getting together to talk about death. It's not a support bereavement group. So I don't want people to hear that and think that they're going to walk into a room full of people that are bereaved and kind of all talking about that. That's a very specific context and it deserves its own space. So it's not one of those things. This is more a casual conversation to talk about death, whatever you want to, whatever topic you want to chat about related to death. It's pretty magical. Like you, you walk into that space and you realize that death is the great equalizer. You've got people from 90 years old to, uh, I think the youngest I've ever seen at a death cafe that I have attended was like 14, 15 years old. And they're just, it's just people that are here, you know, because we don't have those spaces for us mm -hmm. to walk into and, and have these big community oriented discussions about things, except for you do in a death cafe, which is why I think they're so great. And they're also hosted virtually as well. So if people are looking for, if people are too afraid to look at these things on their own, like if you're not ready for that, if you feel like you need to hold someone's hand while you kind of walk into considering those things, um, then a death cafe is a really great alternative for you. And are those virtual death cafes on, do they have a, like a website? Yeah, I think if you just go to, I mean, I can confirm this right now. Um, but if you, yeah, if you go to deathcafe.com, you can find death cafes there. Okay. And they would be both in person and virtual, whichever one you need. You've kind of alluded to some of the some of the reasons why, you know, why do you think that it's a, such an avoidant word that people are using? I can't remember. I you were telling me a story, or someone was telling me a story about um, someone was talking about. You know, they called it the D word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That happened. Uh, I was recently at a conference and I was delivering a presentation on um, uh, massage therapy and end of life care. And at the end of the conference, I got a DM from someone that had attended and they just let me know that, you know, the talk was, it kind of opened their eyes to paying more attention to how death avoidant our society really is. And then they said, you know, case in point, I was attending another lecture and uh, the speaker said the D word. And it took her a second to realize that the speaker was talking about death. They, they weren't comfortable saying the word death out loud in their lecture. And I mean, I just I think that's a perfect example of, you know, even con even in context of education, sometimes people get a little bit skittish about saying that word out loud. And I think where it comes from is perhaps an overly sensitized approach to trying to prevent harming other people. Mm -hmm. um, but we've gotten so hypersensitive around not talking about death that now we're harming ourselves by not talking about death, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's like in certain contexts, it's okay to say the word death. Mm -hmm. But I think people are just so aware of the fact that death is difficult uh, it's just inherently difficult and it's probably always going to be that way to some degree or another. And so when you're in a group of people to turn the attention to something that has socially been that suppressed, 
is, you know, you, you probably have a sense of kind of going rogue against the grain. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's probably the, the idea that death can somehow be a dirty word. You know, we, we've even on social media, it's now, you know, the algorithm doesn't like showing content that has the word death spelled out. So people find all kinds of clever ways of referring to death without actually writing D E A T H mm. or they say unalived mm. rather than died now. I guess even in our, I mean, I was never really concerned about the first episode because I thought it would be a good conversation, but I was curious as to how people were going to respond to it um, because it's not like it's a, again, a topic that is, I mean, I'm sure in your world, because of what you do, it's a topic that's discussed a lot. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are a few uh, people that I would consider leaders in the massage therapy space that are doing work on it, but then you've also got the the kind of public that listens to this show. And yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't think we were, or there was going to be sort of negative backlash from it, but I was surprised by the amount of positivity that surrounded that episode, which is why I opened up with that particular comment. But I think it probably just speaks to what you said, where people probably do want to speak about it a little bit more in certain circumstances. And have some thoughts around it. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is this idea of as people get closer to the idea of, of death or, or maybe their own um, end of life or they're going through hospice care and everybody's different along mm -hmm. their way and along their journey, the kind of importance of some type of spiritual practice or contemplative practice do you do you see a difference in those two words contemplative practice curiosity versus spiritual practice and i know this is person dependent because different beliefs and i don't really want to get into the specific nuances of things like religion and that type of thing i just wanted to get your thoughts on because there are just people that don't they just don't want to do that there are people that even when I talk about meditation with patients or people or friends, which mm -hmm. is like, yeah, that's not for me. Yeah. And I guess maybe that just goes back to like, everything's individualized. Yeah. And I think it's individual and also it depends when you're catching someone in their journey, like in their life. Like I mentioned earlier, there would have been a time where I considered myself an atheist and again, I feel the same way about someone who's devoutly staunchly atheist as I do about someone who's devoutly staunchly religious in that if you're not willing to say in brackets, at least, but I might be wrong, right? We can't know for sure. Those two things have very much the same flavor for me. Like I see a commonality between both. Um, and people think of them as being on opposite sides of the spectrum. And I suppose in some ways they are, but for me, what I see the, the common thing that I see in between both is this vice grip, like clenching onto certitude, onto certainty that for me, doesn't feel good for me. My spiritual practice is my contemplative practice. I do much better when I try to consider how infinitely tiny we are in this 
extremely complicated, massive universe and how we, we must only know. I mean, I think there is so much to know about this universe that we don't know that we can't even say with certainty that we only know 1%. Mm-hmm. We don't even know how much we don't know, mm-hmm. right? So for anyone to take a super, like a vice grip stance on anything, for me, I'm just like, you're, you're just not ready to be open enough to consider anything else, to consider a different perspective. To push back on that, what if that works for them? I mean, it might work for them. I agree. Yeah, it probably does work for them. So you're fine as long as it works for them. Yeah. Well, until, and this is this is what I was considering, when, when people are faced with the end of their life, this kind of understanding that I'm bringing forward comes from listening to palliative care doctors talking about being around people for, you know, for being around a lot of patients that are facing the end of their lives and being in hospice care. What they've generally noticed is a mixture of different responses to people being of the certain type of that type of personality of that type of philosophy, and then suddenly being faced with their death and having a terminal illness and look, looking, you know, in the near future that they're going to die. And all of a sudden they have all of these questions about whether or not they were wrong. And that can be very painful for people. Mm-hmm. So for some people, they will carry that amount of certainty all the way through to the end of their life. For other people, they have this sudden uprising of, I wasn't willing to look at this before, and now I suddenly have to. That's extremely painful. And then other people just kind of open open themselves up in a pretty graceful way and are finally willing to have some conversations with, with others in the room about what their philosophy is on life and death. And those kinds of conversations can be really healing. But in general, I would say, if you take, and this is why I'm saying that my my spiritual practice is embracing uncertainty, not being 100% sure either way. Maybe having some faith in certain things, but understanding where the strengths and the, and the weaknesses are and having consonance with those things. That's why I'm practicing that. I don't want to get to the end of my life and pretend as if I'm 100% certain that something's going to happen and then suddenly be faced with this horrible, dreadful, rising feeling of, oh, but what happens if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, it's almost a protective action to be like, you know what? I don't know everything. I'm going to have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. and still finding soft spots to land in some form of belief. So for example, I do believe that there's some sort of a, a singular consciousness, or at least it's tied together somehow. My version of proof of that is all I need to, all I need to do is look at death in the way that it happens in real life. You know, an animal in the woods dies, it decomposes, becomes the blade of grass, the blade of grass gets eaten by another insect, that insect gets eaten by a bird, some human eats the bird. You know, it doesn't, I, I, I can see cycles of life and death around me all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that. And like I said, I can't know everything, but there is something about being able to see that in real life with my own eyes that feels like it's really the only answer I'll ever need. You know, and being able to lean into it one way or another is helpful. And I'm sure as I mature, I'll, I'll develop a granularity to my, my spirituality that I don't have yet, because sometimes I struggle. But after looking at death and studying death for this long, what I've become acutely aware of is the fact that 
right now I have youth right now. I have my body that functions. I'm pretty pain-free right now. I can sign up and do a marathon. If I feel like it, all I have to do is train, but at some point I won't be able to do those things. At some point, my body will start declining. It will start failing. And then what I have to lean on is my spirituality because I will be in my head. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want that place to feel as safe and as okay with going with the flow as possible. Yeah, that's one thing Pema really talks about too. Is uh, is that is that as you know, you age, and uh, many people say that, right? Oh, I feel as though I'm 13, you know, in my head, um, but I'm not in my body. And you have your your mind, and and obviously there are some people that um, will have um, the unfortunate circumstances of losing that a little bit earlier than others, but. With that, you have what you would call your propensities, which is, you know, how you see the world and how you have seen the world for a certain period of time and how that allows you to help you with what you're going through, which I think can be valuable. What about the people that are really struggling with any of that and it ha you know, whether it happens quickly or they're just overcome with anger about what's going on. Do you have any kind of tips for how to maybe navigate that or how people can maybe explore that? Yeah. Human connection is probably the first one and human connection with a person who's comfortable not finding answers for that person. Cause it's not, I mean, they, their problem is finding answers and being okay with them within themselves. It takes a similar feeling to if you have unsolicited advice for somebody and they're not ready or willing to hear it, right. You know, kind of emotionally torturing someone at the end of their life with no, no, I know it's going to be fine. And here's why, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to be angry and here's why mm -hmm. like that person has their own process, their own course to run. Mm -hmm. And what it takes is that's the thing is that the notion that you might at some point overcome your anger before you die is false. Right? Some people are angry. Some people are royally pissed off right up until the point that they die. Mm -hmm. And the only thing you can do to make those people feel, I guess, like they haven't been abandoned is being okay with the fact that they're pissed off. Mm-hmm being okay to sit next to them as they're yelling or crying or, you know, blaming over their situation. That's what holding good space is, is just suspending the notion that you have to find some sort of an answer for this person and just letting them emote and letting them explore. And they might come out of their angry phase or they might not. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess my greatest tip is you just have to be okay with embracing what is you might not be able to fix anything for that person at all. Yeah. The unsolicited advice thing is something I really took away from the first conversation about, you know, people generally just want to be able to help, right? They want the person, they see a person being really upset or angry and they want to be able to help that person the best they can. And so often they'll, you know, try to do things. It's, you know, it's all out of good faith, obviously, but that can lead to, you know, further anger and further frustration or that person feeling as though they're not being, heard by the people around them and it becomes really difficult for the person giving the advice and so they're trying to alleviate some of their own suffering by doing that 
Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you're respecting the wishes of the person that's going through the process and being mindful to what they want, you might want to be able to just be a little bit more gentler with that process and just absorb it for what it is. Yeah. And that will be, you know, that that's, as you alluded to, that's going to be difficult. There's, it's not going to be a fun process, but it really is an individual process is something that, you know, I've really taken away from your work and just trying yeah. to observe it through that and being helpful to people where I can be and, and understanding that I don't need to be the person that makes them feel better. If I can help them in one way or another, then I'm happy. But ultimately they're on their own journey that they have to have to go through. And, and that's, that's just part of it. That's it. Yeah. There's people that reach the end of their lives being angry the whole time. There's people that never overcome the why me feeling they go right up until the very end feeling a sense of, um, I didn't deserve this kind Mm -hmm. of energy. There's people that get to incredible spiritual peace at the end. And I hear these stories from some of my own clients. There's people that end up mending, well, mending might be a strong word, but even reconciling or having hard conversations with family members that they've been avoiding for 30 years at the end of one of their lives, right? Because now is the last chance to say something I've been meaning to say for 30, for 30 years and here goes nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's so many different, I mean, the ways that people die is unique to that individual, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, we, a lot of us might die in hospice. A lot of us might die in hospital. A lot, of, a lot of us will have cancer, but those are kind of global ways to look at it. Then you have to mix in the person's life experiences, their personality traits, uh, any traumas they might have had their spiritual beliefs, how much money they have their social network, right? It, it's just all of that informs how a person is going to die. Mm-hmm. There's a million different ways to die and more. What have you learned from a kind of clinical standpoint for the clinicians that are listening? There are a variety of clinicians from a variety of different backgrounds that listen to the show. Mm. Most of them, I would actually, I don't know this, but I'm going to venture to guess that a lot of them are from the allied health profession where it's not like we are actively a part of a palliative care team. We might not have the experience that you do of, being as maybe close to this from a clinical standpoint, what have you learned that you would consider to be new or tips of pieces of information that you can provide to us? Because this is just something that we see in our, you know, everybody's going to come in. Everybody's heard a story. Every clinician listening to this has had that happen to them where someone has received the unfortunate news. I know when I started, I was much younger. It was just very, you know, I'll just use the word awkward, super awkward to navigate for me and didn't really know what to say. I'd say getting marginally better at it, but do you have any mm-hmm. advice for people that are maybe curious about how to better navigate those spaces? So the question is for for clinicians specifically? Or in general, clinicians, I mean, ultimately, we're only clinicians when we're in a room with another and we're just a person. And the context is if if they're faced with one of their clients coming in and having bad news about like a terminal illness or something like that. Yeah. So I think the important thing to note is that 
I mean, for me and my own experience, pulling out of my own life, I've really only ever been surprised by a person announcing a terminal diagnosis or, you know, a death or something like that when I wasn't, when, when I was in a place in my life where I wasn't willing to look at death. So once you start practicing a contemplative practice, you kind of, there, there's, you start creating more gentler space for hearing bad news, well, quote unquote bad news. It's, it's more, you know, it's more real life news than, than anything else. I don't, I don't want to, uh, make something inherently negative if it's all around us all the time, right? So any kind of hard news that you get about a person getting sick or a person dying, it doesn't sweep you right off your feet if you're in a place where it's something that you contemplate to begin with. So again, doing that contemplative practice is a good place to start. Secondly to that, I think I think there will always be times where we're surprised by something. Um, I mean, I can... I would say that I'm I'm better with hearing people come in and tell me the hard things that have happened to them, but every once in a while I still get surprised by something. And then, yeah, I do have to do some self-care around it. Like, for example, I, I had a, a person that had, uh, I have to keep them anonymous, obviously, but, and this could be anybody because it happens a fair bit, but this one, a client that I'm thinking of in particular had a, a miscarriage. And they were so looking forward, so looking forward to being a mom. And then it didn't happen, right? And and it's just, I saw them very shortly after they had their miscarriage. And I think what, you know, if I, if I had have received that information through text or something like that, then you have a little bit of a space where the person's not directly right in front of you, where you can kind of feel what you need to feel and then come up with a response. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of space seems to make a difference. But when they're right in front of you and you can see the pain on their face and you don't know what to say and, you know, and you can, it's written on their face how traumatic an event it was, then it's almost like you have to do double the time in processing the information that's in front of you because it's not only the hard news, it's also you're witnessing the pain that the hard news caused on another person. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's to me, that's where things can get hard is when you're given the news in front of you. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a whole other level of what do I do? Do I hug them? Do I give them space? Do I ask them what they need? Do I, you know, do I, do I, do I? It's a tough question to answer because it depends on the person that you're dealing with. Like, it, hopefully, you would know that personality, that client enough that you can. And you might be, you might already have a therapeutic relationship that's deep enough with them that you would know, know what to say that might land in, in a good way for that person. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like, it's just, uh, it's, it's a tough question to answer. I, I can give you another example of listening to these palliative care doctors talking about how even they don't know what to say. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, you say the words, I'm sorry to one person. And they say, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. And they say, thank you. And then to another person, you say, I'm sorry for your loss. Same exact sentence. But that other person might go, what are you sorry for? Mm -hmm. Just like specifically, what are you sorry for? Mm -hmm. You know, like it just it just depends on the context and on, on the person. But I would generally say that contemplative practice is the thing that will help provide you with some sort of a footing so that you're not completely swept off your feet when someone comes to you and has uh, challenging news. 
Well, and to piggyback off your point, one of the things that I've been taught about just communication in general is having an expectation of what the response will be is not a great way to go into something. Yeah. So again, if you, if you say, I'm sorry, having an expectation that that person is going to say, thank you. Mm-hmm. And then they burst out in anger. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily prepare you as well for what those responses will be. And as you said, sometimes no matter how well prepared you are, you're yeah. still going to be surprised or experience your, your kind of own emotional roller coaster. But that's, you know, one of the things that I've taken with me in terms of communication in general is I can only really be responsible for the things that I say. Mm-hmm. And that's I it. can't be responsible for the reactions that people have to the things that I say based on the millions of factors that affect that from of which many are out of my control right a lot Mm -hmm. of the time you know i remember a friend of mine that's going through a kind of a relationship breakup and they talk about closure right and they (laughs) want they want to seek closure from that individual because they feel as though it will help them move on or if that person has treated them poorly it will allow them to kind of get their final word in to allow them to move on. And I asked them, I said, well, what if the, what if the response is not what you expect? You know, what if you go in and you blame the person for whatever, let's say they treated, you know, just arbitrarily treated you poorly. And Mm -hmm. so you want an apology. (laughs) So you go to that person, you say, you know, look, you hurt me, you hurt me. And then what if the person sounds off at you and says, this is all your fault, whatever, whatever, what are you going to do now? So you can't really control the responses of what people are going to do in a variety of circumstances in life. You can only really be responsible for what you're doing yourself and be comfortable with the unknowingness of those outcomes. You know, when I was taught that, it, it just makes you feel more comfortable, right? You don't have to say the right thing because there's really as you alluded to no right thing to say some people are going to respond in a way that you might expect and some people aren't yeah i mean i I specifically want to clarify this we're talking about the right thing to say so it's hard to know what the right thing to say is but i i would argue that we know the wrong things to say at this point Generally speaking, yes. Generally speaking, yeah. Like if if you're telling someone that, you know, they've lost someone important to them and you're saying everything happens for a reason, Mm -hmm. that's probably not going to go over well. (laughs) You know, what reason is that, Ashley? Mm -hmm. What reason do you have that my father died? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just kind of wondering. Yeah. You know, any time that you start with the words at least, like Mm -hmm. at least they're at peace now, that's that's already you're into comparison and you don't want to compare states of being alive or not alive, because at least they're at peace. You know, that's not, the intention might come from a good place, but the impact is rarely ever sufficient Mm -hmm. for the person receiving that kind of thing. Like anytime you bring spirituality or religion into it, because you don't know what that individual person's religious or spiritual beliefs are. You know, so if you tell them that God needed another angel, it's not gonna land well, yeah. Well, and I think, one of the sort of final questions that I had for you was around grief. And um, I know in previous conversations we've had on this podcast, grief is such a specific thing. And 
Um, I know that you've talked at length about how, you know, sometimes we have this idea that grief is this linear time dependent thing where, you know, you go through loss and then you go through the typical psychological cycle of denial, blah, 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 blah. And then you get to a point where you're just okay. And then you move forward, but you talk about a much more, you know, dynamic, fluid, undulating, remitting, resurging kind of model of grief that can happen at any moment for many months to years to, you know, entire lifetime. How do you help people educate them on that? And even if people are starting that journey now, what might you say to them about grief? Grief is a tough one. Yeah, I, I, th- I feel like grief is one of one of the toughest human states to to work with. I know that people really don't want to hear it. I feel like on some level we understand it, but it might not be what we want to hear. But grief, grief changes over time in some ways, but we will always have it right? It isn't one of those things that you can overcome completely. Like you just said, it is, it does take a cyclical nature. And maybe the frequency of you experiencing grief, you know, changes over time where in an acute state, you feel grief every single day, minute to minute. But the longer that time goes by, you might go through phases of experiencing grief related to the loss of a specific person. Right. So say you lose your, uh, you know, say you're eight years old and you lose your, we'll go back to the same father. And then, you know, you have this horrible amount of grief. Then all of a sudden you feel it very acutely at the age of 16 again, because it's your sweet 16. And then you go through a few more years feeling, you know, like you can carry it again. And then bam, all of a sudden, you know, someone proposes to you and now you're supposed to be married and you're like, who's going to give me away at my wedding? Mm -hmm. Right. So grief does kind of take that cyclical nature where it goes through phases of you being able to carry it, quote unquote, well, and then something might come up again where all of a sudden you're right back into the thick of it. But the thing is that you can develop a toolkit where when it comes back up for you, you have, you know, you've got meditation, you've got journaling, you've got going for a run, you've got talking with a friend, you've got adventuring going to a different location you've got uh, the concept of a wind phone so wind phones wind phones are getting more and more popular they're basically disconnected disconnected pay phones that you can go to and and talk on the phone with a loved one lots of oh there was legacy projects you know if if your father died and you collected all of his sweatshirts and made a quilt out of it you can hang out on the couch with the quilt made of your dad's sweatshirts you know there's different ways that you can reconnect with you know, that person's legacy Mm -hmm. that can help take the edge off of your grief Mm -hmm. or, you know, counseling, you know, you can go the more clinical ways, talking with someone, uh, talking with a professional, something like that. Mm -hmm. But in reality, what happens is, you know, we structure the rest of our lives around that grief. We, We can't really ultimately completely get rid of it. Yeah. Maybe the, the recognition of that, might be really important. Yeah. It's a hard thing to reckon with. It's a hard thing to accept. You know, it's a hard thing to accept the fact that we can't just magically, you know, one day after lots of work on it, that we'll somehow overcome our grief and we'll never feel it again ever a single time. 
-hmm. you know, that's not, that's not ultimately really that possible. I mean, I, I, I had grief over the loss of my childhood dog a few days ago, you know, I'm 35. I haven't seen that dog since, I mean, forever ago now, mm -hmm. but you know, I, something a, a, a very sweet memory of him came up in my mind that I hadn't thought of in a long time and all of a sudden you know I made the connection between that loss and now the fact that I've got these my two my own two pets at home now that I love so so much mm -hmm. and I just kind of pasted the experience of losing my childhood dog onto you know the understanding that one day I'll lose these two animals and you know a fresh bout of grief came up mm -hmm. and that's just you know that's just the reality of being alive like we're all going to have to carry that mm -hmm. it's just a part of it just like dying is mm -hmm. you know and grief ultimately is unexpressed love so if you can find a way to take the edge off of it by recognizing the fact that the reason why it hurts so much is because that person or that animal can't accept anymore how much love we have for them because they're not here and now i have to carry this love by myself mm -hmm. That ultimately really is what we're talking about is love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're grieving so much because you love the person so much. Someone else, I don't know if that was you that that I learned that from or something, but someone else was talking about that grief yeah. being an expression of love. And it was like, oh, that's a pretty neat way to reframe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all, you can reframe death in a similar way too. You know, death on its surface might have all these hard edges and it might be a really hard thing to look at. But when you consider, you know, if you were to pull everybody on this planet and say, if you push this button, you will never, ever, ever, ever die. You will have complete immortality. Do you push the button or do you not? I would suspect that the majority of us at some point would be like, no, I'm ready to I know what this is now. I've been here forever. I'm immortal. I don't, you know, mm -hmm. give me another adventure. Yeah. Like, give me something else. At some point, if we're willing to accept it, how can we make peace with it now so that when it does come, it's not as painful to accept? Life is ultimately sweeter because death exists. That's the reality. That's a very good line. <laughs> Put in a quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll we'll wrap it up there. Before you go, where can people find you online if they want to? I know you're probably soon to releasing a course at some point yep. in the near future. And uh, people can look out for that if they're clinicians or just interested in general. But where can people find you kind of on social media or website or what have you if they want to learn more from you? Yes. So I am online on Instagram. My name on Instagram is ash.rmt.deathdoula. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can search Ashley Brzezicki, A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-R-Z-E-Z-I-C-K-I. And I do have Facebook as well, although I'm not on Facebook um, as frequently as I am on Instagram or on LinkedIn. I do have a website that's coming. Uh, if you just type in ashleybrzicki.com, it'll bring you to that website. It's being constructed. And then outside of that, I am working on a course. Uh, it, it will be coming out in 2024. Um, so that's that's upcoming and I'll be posting lots of updates on my socials about that. So, Cool. Thanks again for chatting. Thanks for having me again. No problem. I'm going to leave people with a story from you. Sure.
Twyla has been testing me lately. When I start feeling frustrated, I remind myself that one day she won't be around for me to experience her wild antics. She's made me a more patient person and she's teaching me to accept her for who she is. I'm finding that because of that, I've also been softer with humans. I could have the perfect cat or I could have Twyla. And I'm at the point where I recognize I wouldn't have learned anything from a perfect cat that doesn't challenge me. Twyla's a little rascal, but she's my little rascal. And my lessons in doing end-of-life work are reminding me that people's slash animals annoying behaviors might get to us while they are living, but a lot of the times when they're gone, we start to miss their quirks. One day she won't be around, and I'll wish that I could get woken up by her running full speed across my body and leaping onto my head. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. Hope that you found the episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one.